0: I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8, John chapter 8, you're looking at verses 12 through 20 this morning, I've entitled this, The Witnesses of the Light, The Witnesses of the Light. So we return this week to uh, the text of John's Gospel after having discussed the last two weeks the issues surrounding the inclusion of John chapter 7 and verse 53 through 8 and verse 11 in our Bibles and addressing the principle of the passage as found elsewhere in Scripture, specifically looking at Matthew 7, 1 through 5. So we were talking about textual criticism a bit and and, uh, why we have these footnotes in our Bible and then we took the principle of John 8, verses 1 through 11 and uh, talked about that in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. So today we get into John 8, verses 12 through 20 and looking at this continued conversation which... Uh, Jesus has with the religious leaders still concerning his identity and his continued calling upon the witness of his Father to that identity. I'm going to allow you to remain seated uh, this morning during our Scripture reading in the New Testament, uh, but I'd like for you to follow along uh, as I read aloud. I'm in John chapter 8, verse 12 in the ESV. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke. In the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Would you join me in prayer once again? Lord, as we open your word this morning, we are thankful for it. And we are grateful that we have this opportunity to study together. We ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit who indwells believers and who inspired these words in the original autographs that you would now Lord, illuminate our understanding. We ask that you would help us to see clearly and to live out the truths we see in this passage. We praise you, Lord, for your revelation to us. Thank you, Lord, and I pray that you would humble me, get me out of the way, and Lord, help us all to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Many many of us have gotten that little notification in the mail that we just love. You have been selected for jury duty. <laughs> now, I don't have a problem with this uh, necessarily. I think it's wise for us to do our civic duty. I do have a problem with the fact that uh, we have lived here for nearly eight years and I've been called up twice and Amber never has. But that's beside the point. And the few occasions I have been called up in my adult life, I've only been seated as a juror one time. It was a small case, a one-day case in deliberation, but it ended up being one man's word, the accused against another, the police officer who had arrested him. And while I believed that the man was probably guilty of the offense, I didn't think that the state produced enough evidence necessary to find the man guilty. As we find in our legal system, I concurred with my fellow jurors that we did not have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the man had actually committed the crime. And I was convinced uh, that he, uh, if he had, he would probably do these things again and there would be stronger evidence the next time. But there just wasn't that evidence beyond a, a shadow of a doubt or a reasonable doubt. Interestingly, one of my fellow jurors who had sworn under oath that he had not uh, he was not prejudiced against the police. Later told me, no matter what evidence the state produced, he would have found the man not guilty because his own son had been wrongly arrested by Peoria police. So he not only perjured himself, but his motivation was not based upon the evidence. It worked out that time, but how does this square with justice? How does this square with the idea that perhaps in another case, whether Uh, where there had been more witnesses against the alleged offender, that the man could have sided with the offender even if he were clearly guilty. Now one thing we recognize is that we live in an unjust world and with an imbalanced system that is not always as fair as it may seem. And we see the parallels with this in our text today. Regardless of how many witnesses and facts can be held up to show that Jesus is who he says he is, the religious leaders of his day refuse to believe that he is indeed who he says he is. In fact, the witnesses of Jesus continue to pile up, and yet they have the audacity to confront Jesus as they do in our text. And here's the main point this morning. It's written for you in your worship folder on the back there. Uh, Or uh, if you receive the email with the bulletin in it, it's written for you there. Jesus' continued testimony concerning himself is true and attested by the Father. And this may seem like a point that we continue to come back to over and over again. Well, we do because that's where the text brings us. That's where we continue to see Jesus going. We see Jesus' continued testimony uh, testimony concerning himself is true and is attested by the Father. And we see this once again this morning. The continued self-revelation of Jesus this morning in four parts is what we see. The continued uh, self-revelation of Jesus in four parts. The first part is this. Jesus claims to be the light of the world. Jesus claims to be the light of the world. Look at it again in verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I was listening to S. Lewis Johnson this morning, as I often do uh, on Sunday mornings before uh, I preach, um, uh, not to copy him in any way, but to listen to someone who is uh, wiser than me uh, preach a text. And he preached just on verse 12. And I thought it was such a rich sermon sermon. Uh, the, the, at least the portion of it that, that I got to listen to this morning. And uh, he just was uh, expounding upon the the riches of this text, this one verse. And, and we could do the same, but I want us to catch the, the context this morning. We see here in the beginning another I am statement from Jesus. Another I am statement from Jesus. There is always underneath these I am statements from Jesus a nod to him being Yahweh. That is... The name that God uh, names himself, Moses' question to God as he's going to rescue the children of Israel is, who should I say has sent me to release them from uh, bondage, from slavery? And God says, I am that I am. Uh, the name of God is the ever-existing one, the one who has never had a beginning, never has an end, the I am and so Jesus in this statement says, I am. And then he, he makes a statement, the light of the world. The light of the world. From where does Jesus get this language, this idea of light? Well, we recall uh, the words in the prologue of this very gospel. Not that Jesus is getting that from there, but, but we recall that John uses language in the prologue that helps sort of outline the rest of the book. And so uh, turn back there to John chapter 1, and we're so familiar with that first verse or maybe the first two verses, but notice what else it says here. John chapter 1 and verse 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God." All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So we see John in his gospel employing this language that We see later on, Jesus is using, describing himself in John chapter 8. Don Carson gives us quite some insight on this idea of light as well. When he says in his commentary on John, the light metaphor is steeped. In Old Testament allusions. Now, just really briefly, let me explain to you what an allusion is. An allusion is not an illusion like David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty uh, you know, disappear. No, it's an allusion with an A. It is an idea of something that is alluded to. We talk about that where, where something is referenced in the Old Testament. Not necessarily word for word, but things that are uh, foreshadowing, as it were. Listen to what Carson says. The glory of the very presence of God in the cloud led the people to the promised land and protected them from those who would destroy them. Exodus 13 and Exodus 14. The Israelites were trained to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 27 and verse 1. The word of God, the law of God, is a light to guide the path of those who Cherish instruction. We, we know this, right? Psalm one nineteen one oh five. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Proverbs 6, 23 as well. God's light is shed abroad in revelation. We see this in the book of Ezekiel and also in salvation in Habakkuk chapter 3. So as we consider the way in which Just this metaphor must have been bursting with Old Testament meaning in the minds of those hearing Jesus' words. We then see he follows us up immediately with a promise that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And we again think of John chapter 1. But before we even think about the the promise there, to whom is the promise made? He is the light of what? The world. He is the light of the world. And so uh, even there the idea of uh, Jesus being the light of the world takes our minds back to the Old Testament where it says that salvation will uh, come to the Jews and the Gentiles. And that language is is used, the light of the nations. Do you recall that from the Old Testament? The light of the nations. And we see the word world uh, employed by John many times to mean not just the Jews, but also the nations, the ethnos. That God will gather from every nation a people. The the remnant of Israel. The the, uh, people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation as we see in Revelation chapter 5. God is making for himself a new covenant people that is realized in the new covenant. And what is the promise to Jew and Gentile alike? Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Consider this metaphor in concert with what Jesus has said previously in John chapter 7. Uh, Keep your finger there in John 8 and turn back to John chapter 7, looking at verses 37 through 39. And there are some that believe that we should connect these verses directly with the verses that we're studying today. We now see Jesus in two declarations bringing the people's minds back to the Old Testament and the way in which these metaphors, living water and uh, and light, find fulfillment in Him. He is the one who is the rock in the wilderness, as Paul says. And He is the one who leads them as a pillar of fire, a light through the wilderness. We know ultimately that Jesus is, is claiming to be the one in whom people can be reconciled to the triune God. And here he is telling them the truth about himself. The truth that if they believed in him, if they followed him, he will lead them. He is the one who will reconcile them to himself, the Father and the Spirit. This is a gospel call. And we recognize that there is a forward trajectory here uh, that has not yet been reached, which is Christ upon the cross. But here as he lives his life Faithfully, as he obeys the uh, the very law of God, in which the um, Pharisees bring into question here in a moment, he is marching towards the cross, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God slain for the nations for, from before the foundations of the world. And so, as we look from this side of the resurrection, we recognize the path upon which he is here, the path toward the cross. This is a gospel call. It's a call for those of us in Christ to find our only hope in Him. When we are tempted to look for light in other places as we are, we are to find our only way out of darkness through Him. There is darkness all around, and it seems to be getting darker all the time. Christian, are you consuming the wisdom of the world? Don't let the world be the one that guides you. It is utter darkness. Don't let the wisdom of man guide you. It is utter darkness. Let the light of Christ shine in your heart. And then discern what is truth from error. Continue, dear Christian, to trust in Him who said, I am the light of the world if you follow me. I will lead you out of darkness. And that's the kind of language that Paul uses, isn't it? He takes us out of darkness into light and puts us into his family. Perhaps you're one here who has never turned to Christ. You've never trusted him. Here he is calling you just as he did to Israel in that day that you would recognize who he is. He is, as Paul says, calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You must trust in Him alone. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. There is no other way for your sins to be forgiven. There is no other way for you not to dwell in darkness than to come to the One who is the light, the One who uh, lived that life that you could not live, died the death that you deserved, endured uh, uh, the justice of God, upon the cross and we say justice of god father son and spirit working in cooperation as the one god to bring about the redemption of jew and gentile alike hear that gospel call this morning and believe in him well as per usual the pharisees are not having this and We see this in our second point, the Pharisees. second part of this unfolding of the self-revelation of Jesus is that the Pharisees accuse him of self-testimony, of self-testimony. Look again in verse 13, flipping back over to John 8. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. It seems like the Pharisees are more concerned about Jesus making objective statements than they are about the content of what he is saying. Though it also seem they know, or at least in part know, what he is getting at. They say this, you are bearing witness about yourself. Therefore, you could say it this way, because you are the only witness to this, your testimony is not true. In other words, it is your word against our word. Where are your witnesses? And... Uh, Another way to say it is, anyone can claim to be the things that you're claiming to be. Where is your proof? And they seem to be appealing to this text that Pastor Mike read for us in our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 19.15. Just listen to the first verse again. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now that's in the case of something criminal that has happened, but they are using this principle to say, Jesus, you cannot be your own witness. The challenge of the Pharisees in one sense is sort of undo. They know the law, but we must remind ourselves of the backdrop of what they're saying here. So they're claiming that Jesus has no proof in being who he says he is. But what is the backdrop of this very statement? They have seen and cannot refute the testimony of Jesus concerning himself, not only in his words, but also in his actions, especially as really anything that they claim that he has done against the law is unfounded. And they have actually witnessed the miracles, the miraculous signs, which point to who he is. But even at this, we recall that the Pharisees and other religious leaders are more concerned with the law than they are with the one who is fulfilling the law. They accuse Jesus because what does he do? He heals on what day? The Sabbath. Rather than rejoicing in what he has done. We're going to see this really very, very clearly in John chapter 9. I'm very excited for us to get to John chapter 9. It is a major turning point in John's gospel. But quite frankly, the Pharisees don't care that he is the Messiah. They don't care that he is the Messiah, and they continue to prove that they do not care about this. And what Jesus reveals is what he does have the authority to make these claims. He is the foundation of the Mosaic Law, after all. But he also has another witness. So so Jesus can make these claims because he is God, and any sense of law comes from who God is. It's from his very person. But he also submits, as it were, in a sense, to their criticism and states, oh, but I do have another witness. But he does this, thirdly, by calling into question their standard. He calls into question Their standard in verses 14 through 18. He does have the authority to bear witness about himself because he knows his true origin and where he comes from and where he is going. Look at it with me. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. In what way? For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. As we continue to encounter this, uh, we see a a constant theme throughout the Gospel of John, which is Trinitarian language. We see here, The Father sends the Son. The Son, when He has accomplished His mission, will return to His Father. That's what He's saying here. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. His testimony is true because He is God. He is the eternal Son of God. He is sent from God and He will return to the Father. Consider the stand of two or three witnesses from the law. Where does this originate? <laughs> Who has existed in perfect harmony for eternity bearing witness to the glory, majesty, honor, and holiness of Himself, if not God? There are always Three witnesses to the reality of who God is. There's the eternal witness of God himself. But then Jesus goes on and says something really interesting here. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. In this, Jesus is not saying that he never makes any discerning sort of statements or any sort of Judgments about what is going on around him as he's living his life as a human being, uh, the eternal Son of God, in flesh and humanity. But what he is saying is the particular kind of judging that they're doing this fleshly judgment, this external judgment. Jesus is able to bear witness about himself because he is very God, but there are things that are going on that they are witnessing. That are still not good enough for them. So, in what sense does Jesus claim to judge no one? He does not judge according to their standard. He's going to actually make a distinction about this in a moment. He doesn't judge according to their standard. But also, this is not his current mission. In reality, the trajectory of Jesus' mission is not to judge. Look back at John chapter 3. We've already Establish this truth, but but we want to see how these things are all pulling together, because Jesus makes this statement to Nicodemus, not publicly, but he, but he clearly makes this statement in John chapter three and verse seventeen. Notice here as well this language of the one who is sent. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn. Or to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, we think about this language that is employed here in John chapter 3 as well as what is employed in John chapter 8. And we see some parallels, do we not? We think about John 1 as well. The light being sent into the world. The light is coming into the world. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order the world the world might be saved through him. He is the light of the world, Uh, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. uh, Christ comes, God sends the Son to save those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then we're back in John chapter 8 as we think about this, as we're walking through what Jesus says here. he, He does say, verse 16, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Again, this is Trinitarian language here. The, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we have to think about this in time because we are time-bound creatures, but they are working out the internal operations, as we call them, of the Trinity in an external manner. The the reality of the eternal operations of the Father, Son, and Spirit are being worked out in time as Jesus is walking the earth. And Jesus says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. What is Jesus saying? His judgment is the same judgment as the Father, is the same judgment as the Spirit. They are three in one. Their mind, their will is the same. And so Jesus, in a unique way here, begins to draw upon what they are accusing him of and and explain it in a way that cannot be refuted. He draws on the principle which he knows they are using, which is Moses' and solidifies his argument. I bear witness about myself, and my Father also bears witness about me. Two witnesses are present, the Father and the Son. This is not necessary. Jesus has already shown that it is not necessary, but Jesus does show that actually the condition is met. Eventually, from the perspective of uh, the time in which we are reading the text this morning, so thinking about that trajectory towards the cross and the resurrection, the Spirit eventually will be the one who bears testimony of the Father and the Son to the world. So we're thinking about Jesus' ministry, his mission uh, is uh, not yet accomplished. He has not gone to the cross, but once he does go to the cross, once he has accomplished the redemption of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation... Once he has uh, risen from the dead and he has ascended, then what happens? Uh, Let me just give you a little bit of a preview. A lot of flipping this morning. I hope you're okay with that. John chapter 16. If you're not, well, too bad. Flip there anyway. John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And look at what it says starting in... The middle of verse 4 where it says, I did not say these things to you. See that? I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Notice this language again. The Father sends the Son. We'll see in time that the Father and the Son both send the Spirit. Verse 8, And when He comes, notice what it says here, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see Me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still will have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Do you see the, the Trinitarian nature of what is going on? Even as Jesus gives a little bit of a preview of that back in our text in John chapter 8. So we see the Father bearing witness about the Son. And then we see Jesus in verses 17 and 18 affirming this, solidifying this. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There's your mosaic confirmation, Pharisees. But you will not believe it. They now, lastly, call into question His standard. Our fourth part of the self-revelation of Jesus, the Pharisees call into question Jesus' standard. Got it again with me they said to him therefore where is your father the pharisees know what jesus is claiming they've struggled with his answer before but now they seem to be kind of poking at him they ask this question and it seems to be aimed at the idea of his earthly father some say and assume that perhaps joseph is dead at this point If this is the case, they mean this as a slight. Where is your father? They might also mean it in the sense that he is an illegitimate child. That's a charge that is brought against him. Where is your father? Who is your father? We know who your mother is. We know how this birth came about. Of course, he is not illegitimate. They perhaps know what Jesus is implying about God, but... It seems like they're goading him about his earthly father or the lack thereof from a human perspective. Now, any one of us, you know, as they say in the South, them's fighting words, right? But without missing a beat, Jesus tells them they don't actually know him or know his father. Look at what it says. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So interesting about this is Jesus is standing right before them, is he not? There he is. How can he say they do not know him? The idea there would be that they would have a, a knowledge of who he truly is, an intimate knowledge or relationship with him as is being established with his followers, his disciples. And they do not know Him or His Father. This sends them on a quest once again to arrest Him. By implication, Jesus is saying, You say that you know God, but you truly do not know God. If you knew Me, you would truly know the Father. Once again, we see that they are somehow prevented from arresting Him because it was not His hour. Look at verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Again, the implication is that they wanted to seize him because they understand what he means when he says they do not know his father. He is implying they do not know God. There's an irony here, dear ones. They believed they knew God because they knew and followed the law. Think about this. They believed, they knew God because they knew and followed, according to their standard, the law. But Jesus, in calling it their law, he says, according to your law, is showing that they really do not understand the heart of the law. In other words, they may be able to quote the law. They may be able to say your testimony means nothing because you do not have two witnesses, which he completely undoes. But they do not understand the heart of the law. They have missed the point of the law, which is that they are unable to bear witness about themselves before God. Jesus, in this text, actually turns the Mosaic law back over on them says, what you say to be true about yourself is not true. You are bearing false witness about your own testimony. You say you know God, but if you do not know me, you do not know God. Where is your witness? They cannot be seen as righteous before God. They actually, the law actually bears witness against them. And yet before them is a man who is the God-man and obeys the law perfectly and is able to judge perfectly but did not come to judge in his first appearance but rather came to be a light shining in the darkness. He is the only one who can reconcile mankind to God. He himself being the mediator between God and man because he is eternally God and has taken on humanity. There is no one else who can bridge that gap besides the Lord Jesus Christ. And every ounce of the law, every sacrifice that was given is pointing forward to him. And before their face stands the one who can reconcile them to God. And they know that he is Messiah. But they do not want to submit to him. Christian, as we stand on this side of the new covenant, as those through whom uh, Jesus' death, uh, burial, resurrection, His ascension, his, uh, His redemption, His atonement for us stand as those who are reconciled to God? Let me ask us this, and I mean us. What or who are we trusting in? Are we trusting that Christ has fulfilled all the law and is the light whom we should follow? Are we following Him? Are we making it our practice to follow him? Reading his word, praying and asking him to lead us. We sing songs about that, don't we? Where he leads me, I will follow. Not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our works, but in his finished work and from a place of gratitude, loving and obeying him. When we follow the Lord Jesus, there is delight and there is joy in that following. He is not going to lead us into darkness. He is only ever going to lead us into his light. Are we then coming alongside of others, encouraging them toward this? Are we pointing them to man's wisdom or to God's wisdom? When you sit down and t- to encourage someone, are you turning to the Scriptures and encouraging them from the truth of God's Word? That seems, in our day, even amongst many Christians, to be antiquated and outdated. But Are we taking the wisdom of God and saying, in this is light, to light your path, to help you walk forward? Ask others for help. If you're one who is struggling, we want to come alongside of you. Come and talk to us. We would love to sit down and encourage you and get you plugged in with somebody who can help you in your walk. And then lastly, if you're one who has tried to reconcile yourself to God by doing enough, it will never be enough. We climb, we climb, we climb, and then we fall, and it will always happen because we cannot perfectly keep God's law. Only one man did that. Only one man who is the God-man stood in our place as the perfect sacrifice. My call to you this morning is to turn from your sin, from your self-righteousness and trust in Him alone if you've not done that. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this feels heavy because we have talked about the unbelief of the Pharisees this morning, yet, Lord, fill our hearts with joy because in this building this morning are many who have trusted in you. Perhaps there are some who need to be restored in the joy of their salvation this morning and others whose cups are just overflowing. Lord, let us rejoice yet again in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and let us live for you not to earn anything from you, but because you have earned it for us. And Lord, you call us to a life of abundant joy in following you and you light our path. Lord, would you continue to shine your light upon those dark corners of our heart where we need to repent and continue to move forward in our Christian walk. And I pray, uh, Lord, as well, for those who do not know you, that today might be the day that the light shines into the darkness for the first time and that you would Take them from death to life, from darkness to light. We know that you are the one who does that, Lord. May the call be effective by your spirit this morning in those hearts. Send us in your joy this morning, Lord, we pray. In Christ's precious name, amen.